It's Thursday, February 2nd. Where do we go now? Well, Tyree Nichols' family has some ideas. We start here. In the city that they slayed the dreamer. Memphis comes together to mourn, expressing anguish and anger. What has happened to the dream? But what will come of Tyree Nichols' life and death? A whistleblower says the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court isn't telling the whole truth. There's no one that's looking over the shoulder of the justices. That isn't the only ethics concern facing the justices either. And Florida Governor Ron DeSantis wanted changes to black history curricula. He got them. The timing maybe makes it seem maybe certain influences had a role. As Black History Month begins, some teachers are concerned politics are getting advanced placement in the classroom. ABC News. This is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. Tyree Nichols' family never wanted to hold a funeral for him. Not now, less than 30 years after his birth. After he died on January 10th, they were entitled to hold whatever type of service they wanted. Big, small, maybe just close family and friends. You are my strength. Well, yesterday, it seemed like much of their world was welcomed into his funeral. And throughout the service, it became clear that they wanted more than sympathy. They want action. Don't give up the fight. Start today with ABC's Byron Pitts, who's the co-anchor of Nightline. He joins us now. Byron, this was such an emotional scene in Memphis. Can you just describe sort of what stuck out to you as you watched this? It reminded me, having grown up in the black church, the magic, the beauty, the majesty of the black church. We have come with heavy hearts that can only be healed by the grace of God. It was a space in which not just the community of Memphis, but all of America and anyone tuned in online. It was an opportunity to grieve. I promise you the only thing that's keeping me going is the fact that I really truly believe my son was sitting here on an assignment. To celebrate. I was born by the river. To be angry, unapologetically angry. This is a continuous fight that we have to fight for. We have to fight for justice. We cannot continue to let these people brutalize our kids. And then a place to begin the healing but also begin to strategize. How do we make this anger into something productive? This is a family that lost their son and their brother. We heard powerful voices, Vice President Kamala Harris. At the hands and the feet of people who had been charged with keeping them safe. We understand that there's needs to deal with crime. And I wanna make special note of Reverend Al Sharpton. Right, who certainly has his fans and his critics. But you don't fight crime by becoming criminals yourself. But when we talk about the power of the pulpit in the black church, it is a space in which he is world class. He is a maestro. In the city that they slayed the dreamer, what has happened to the dream? This happened in all places. Uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, the place where Dr. King died, uh, where he was in Memphis to talk about uh, city employees not being uh, treated as equal workers, the garbage workers. That had no safety. Two had been killed with a malfunction. 
and how in Memphis, Tennessee, that people fought and struggled in particular to give blacks, uh, sanitation workers rights. They worked to have black men and women on the police force. Fast forward all these years later. Not far away from that balcony, you beat a brother to death. There's nothing more insulting and offensive to those of us that fight to open doors that you walk through those doors and act like the folks we had to fight for to get you through them doors. Hey, you've spent much of the last few days, you've had so many engaging conversations on Nightline and you heard it at this service, the, the sort of need for action. I mean, what action is being called for by his family and what action is on the table in places like Washington? What what, what are the actual reforms that, that are still sort of on the docket here? Well, in the short term, his family is calling for peace, which can ever can ever be overestimated and which we've seen thus far uh, since his death and since that videotape was released last Friday, that there have been peaceful demonstrations, period, full stop. Also, I think legislative action. You know, the the George Floyd bill, which has died in Congress, there's a hope that that might be revisited. We had a conversation this week with the head of the uh, Congressional Black Caucus. I reject the notion that we cannot do big things, including improving police culture in America. And, and I think over time, even the conversation about police reform has become more sophisticated. I, I think, you know, we've sort of moved beyond defund the police. The most reasonable people recognize that that's not probably the best way to phrase it, and that's not what anyone's really looking for. But find ways to reform policing where it goes from policing to public safety. You want to be a tough guy? Well, let's get rid of qualified immunity and see if you learn the same manners you have on the white side of town, you'll have some manners on the black side of town. Because what we all saw in the videotape was the ugliest version of policing that dates back from its foundation in slavery. What I think all reasonable people want is public safety. And public safety is not what any of us saw in that videotape. You've covered too many of these exact type of funerals in the last several years. I'm wondering, is there a specific legacy that you think Tyree Nichols is about to have as as we move forward here? I, I look at the images of Tyree Nichols, this slim, good-looking young man, and certainly I think about George Floyd, as we all do. Um, I think about all the names, but you know, I, I also thought about Emmett Till. Um, that just like in many ways, back in that time when Ebony Magazine and Jet Magazine were the first to have the courage to put his image uh, in the pages of, of their publications, the decision by the media in this case, whether right, wrong, or indifferent, to put the images out there raw for the nation to digest. And so when I think about Tyree Nichols, I'm drawn mostly to Emmett Till in that it was it was a familiar, awful incident that was treated differently in how visually we as a nation came to see it. We all saw it for ourselves to make our own judgments. And also I'm, I'm reminded when I think about Emmett Till, that as significant as his death was, it wasn't the first, it wasn't the last. And as we sit here discussing, digesting, trying to learn from the death of Tyree Nichols, um, not just history, but my spirit tells me this wasn't the last time either. 
yeah, as the Till family, I think, recognized, like a lot harder to be complacent when you've got those images staring back at you. All right. Byron Pitts from Nightline. So helpful as always. Thank you. Always a pleasure. Next up on Start Here, if you've got a problem with how Supreme Court justices do things, well, there's not much you can do about it. A whistleblower says you barely know the half of it after the break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more, or I'd read a book, or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So no compromises here because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. Something's been happening in this country for a while now where it's easier than ever to be disillusioned by public servants. It can seem like politicians will listen to donors and business interests before they'll listen to voters. And so traditionally, trust in Congress and the White House is much, much lower than in institutions like, say, the Supreme Court. However, in the last year, trust in the court has plummeted to historic lows. And now, a whistleblower has come forward with accusations that the leader of the Supreme Court, John Roberts, has a potential conflict of interests through his wife's work. Let's go to ABC senior Washington reporter Devin Dwyer, who covers the court. Devin, who is this whistleblower? It's an attorney by the name of Kendall Price, a Boston lawyer, former colleague of Jane Roberts, that's Chief Justice John Roberts' wife, uh, at a legal recruiting firm uh, here in Washington. The New York Times got their hands on this complaint, which was delivered to Congress and the Justice Department. And what uh, Mr. Price is alleging is that Ms. Roberts, in her role as a recruiter, um, has some pretty cozy ties to law firms that represent uh, cases and clients before the Supreme 
Supreme Court, and he says none of that's been disclosed uh, by the Chief Justice, uh, and then it needs to be. It needs to be investigated. Um, you know, Brad, we talk about conflicts of interest. Well, there are actual conflicts, and there are appearances of conflicts. Mm. This one would seem to be in the later category, uh, although uh, Mr. Price says Congress needs to take a closer look at this in case there's actually more there there. So they're saying, like, it's not a good look. The issue here, though, Devin, is what? That some of the people she's recruited have gone on to eventually argue at the Supreme Court? Like, that's the thing that looks weird. It's her recruits. Well, Jane Roberts, for years, has helped top law firms in the country recruit top talent. I mean, we're talking former Justice Department attorneys, cabinet secretaries, politicians, and she gets pretty fat commissions for landing those lawyers at these firms. I mean, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars. So these firms pay these commissions to her. Then those lawyers and those firms appear before the Supreme Court. Um, There is a very small selective bunch of law firms that regularly practice at the Supreme Court, Brad. So this whistleblower is saying uh, that connection is not Mm. uh, transparent. It's not in the public eye as it should be. Uh, And so he faults the Chief Justice for not disclosing that. Now, we should say we've reached out to the Supreme Court. They did not respond to our questions uh, about these claims, uh, but they did tell the New York Times that the justices are very attentive to the ethics issues. Uh, they deny any wrongdoing here. Certainly, the chief justice uh, and his wife did not comment to us either. Um, but a spokeswoman told the Times, I've heard it from the spokeswoman before, uh, that recusal by the justices is not necessary simply for the political activities or professional activities of their wives, their spouses, you know, unless there's a more direct connection. The justices really don't need to step aside. But that call, Brad, is one they get to make on their own. And that's what some people say is part of the problem. Well, and isn't this isn't the first time that we've heard of a justice, even a justice on this court, that that their spouse is sort of involved in activities that could pertain in some way to the Supreme Court. And maybe that could cloud their judgment, right? Like, is this becoming a liability for the court? Well, spouses of Supreme Court justices have always gotten some of the spotlight, um, but none uh, more than Jenny Thomas, the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas. We're under America's in a vicious battle for its founding principles, and you and I are living through it, and we're being called to listen and act very carefully. Who, of course, is a conservative icon. She's a liberal target. She has been a longtime activist for some of the same conservative causes that appear before the court, abortion, gun rights, religious freedom. May we all have guns and concealed carry to handle what's coming, by the way. All of those sorts of things. Uh, And for years, Justice Thomas has defiantly insisted he has complete separation from his wife's activities. And ethics watchdogs I've been talking to, Brad, say this case of Jane Roberts is yet another example of why the Supreme Court needs to adopt an enforceable ethics code. We need to look again at those closest to the justices. If you appear to be against someone or something then you shouldn't be judging that someone or something. They don't have one. There's no independent. Yeah, wait, what are the rules? There, are, there, there aren't any rules for any of this? That's right. There's no one that's looking over the shoulder of the justices. There's no one doing a, an audit of their cases <laughs> and their potential conflicts. There's no binding system uh, to hold them to account in this way. And so that's why you're starting to hear from members of Congress, including some Republicans, say it's time to draft a code and write it into federal law. The court either cannot or will not do what is in its own best interest. So, therefore, Congress must step in. 
I'm not sure that this Jane Roberts story uh, will be enough <laughs> to get that momentum right. going, but there's certainly a lot more conversation today uh, about needing to do something at the Supreme Court. And the Chief Justice has acknowledged as much himself. He just hasn't done anything yet. I'm sorry, Deborah. I'm just like blinking my eyes because this isn't like these aren't jobs that are up for election. These aren't even like short term limits. These are lifetime appointments. Like there's no way to force somebody to do the right thing or whatever. There's one rule and that's impeachment. (laughs) And the Constitution does allow the Congress to impeach a justice for for bad behavior. But the bar is very high, Brad. And so when you're talking about the spouses uh, of the justices and some of their activities and the mere appearance of a conflict of interest, which I should say is the standard that all other federal judges are held to, uh, many people now saying that it's time to give a closer look to the uh, the top justices in this country and, and to set forth a policy that's enforceable. All right. Devin Dwyer, thanks so much. Thanks, Brad. This month, of course, is Black History Month. And while every February is a chance to revisit how black Americans and black people across the world have shaped the course of history, this is a particularly salient year because this year, more than any other in decades, the very concept of black history is at the center of a national argument. We should not be teaching our children to see everything through a lens of race. In recent months, we've seen several government leaders, particularly in red states, ask what value black history courses actually have for our children. In the post-George Floyd era, when teachers remind students that black Americans have been systematically subjugated throughout much of our history, groups of parents, often white parents, have responded, listen, what purpose does it serve to make kids distrustful of white folks? We don't want the children to be indoctrinated with false teachings Oh, the white people are all the bad people. This has not resulted in a great nationwide academic debate. Rather, it's resulted in professional academics being told to change what they're teaching. In Florida, Republicans passed a law outlawing courses that teach so-called divisive concepts. And recently, the state's Department of Education said a new AP class on African-American studies won't be tolerated. So, this month on Start Here, we are embarking on a series of reports about black history in the classroom, how it's taught, where it's taught, and what effect these shifting demands will actually have on students. Yesterday, on the very first day of Black History Month, the College Board, which oversees these AP courses, announced it was changing up its curriculum on that African-American studies class, perhaps making it more palatable in a state like Florida, but this will affect kids in schools across the country. So, let's take you to Florida right now. Summer Brugal is a reporter with the Miami Herald. She focuses on K-12 through education. So, Summer, first off, can you just describe this move from the College Board? Yeah, I think that this was an expected move. We knew that this was coming for, you know, a couple weeks now. This course has been in the works for, you know, nearly a year, according to the College Board. Um, and just kind of to take a step back for, for those who aren't in everyday education coverage, um, an AP class is an advanced placement course. It allows high school students to take college level courses Uh, They can get uh, a boost to their GPA and also allows them to get uh, college level credits, you know, if they do pass the the test at the end of the year. There is no way to present a real sense of what transpired among human beings if you don't talk about everything. This is the first African-American studies uh, AP class that College Board um, has put forward. So Mm. for the past year, it has been. Um, in a pilot program, if you will, in 60 classrooms across the country. 
Um, one of them was in a Miami-Dade County school, um, but according to the college board, it, it really draws on a variety of fields, mm. um, you know, history, literature, arts, um, sciences, to really understand and to help students explore um, kind of the contributions and experiences of of African-Americans on this country. Every single kid who takes this course signed up with parental permission. They are not being forced to take this course. They have a genuine interest and they want to know more about all of the things that we talk about in this course. The news that came out yesterday really kind of focused on what's not there um, and what's what the topics that aren't there happen to be uh, you know, discussions and uh, maybe lesson plans about Black queer studies, Black Lives Matter movement, Black feminist theory, and topics such as reparations. And so those are kind of the topics and conversations that are seemingly absent from, from this coursework. And, and I think that's where the news of today kind of coincides with Florida in terms of education. And it, can you also just describe then how this cla- or uh, how this pilot over the last several months has kind of come under scrutiny? Can you help us understand what it's been like to be in Florida during this? Yeah. So really, I mean, and I, I you know, like I said, I, I do cover K through 12 schools um, and I frankly heard about the pilot program um, and or I guess the issues with the pilot program when the governor, uh, Governor DeSantis and the Florida Department of Education, you know, raised those concerns um, last month. The issue is we have guidelines and standards in Florida. Uh, we want education, not indoctrination. If it you came want. out that the governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, and the Florida Department of Education um, announced that they would be rejecting this course. Um, and at first, they really didn't provide any information. They really only said that it lacked educational value. Um, but that obviously got a lot of pushback. Governor DeSantis, are you really trying to lead us into an era akin to communism that provides censorship of free thoughts. And after, you know, a couple days, they the department released a handful of, of units or, or lesson plans that they had issues with. And, and those really focused on topics of Black queer studies, the Black Lives Matter movement, Black feminist theory, um, topics surrounding reparations. We were trying to be colorblind. We're trying to all love each other equally. And now in this class, they're telling you that colorblind is a horrible thing. It's a bad thing. A lot of what they said in the days that followed, um, they kind of framed it as these topics are part of a larger political agenda. People want to see uh, true academics and they want to get rid of some of the uh, political window dressing that seems to accompany all this. It kind of all plays into what we've been hearing and what we've been seeing from the administration over the past, you know, two years about this need to remove wokeness. And I'm, I'm using air quotes here. Um, but this this idea that we need to educate our students, not indoctrinate our students. I really don't understand what the concerns are with African-American studies, if I'm being completely honest. I don't feel particularly indoctrinated. This also comes, you know, months after a couple of laws went into place this school year that really limited or banned conversations about race and conversations about LGBTQ um, identities. Kind of an overhaul of, of these systems to, to, yeah, to remove what they consider to be 
inappropriate for students. And so some of the things you mentioned as like what they're what they had problems with, those are some of the things now that the college board is is not including in the program going forward. So I guess the obvious question here is, is this the college board tweaking a relatively new curriculum the way you would with any other new AP class? Or is this the college board caving to conservative lawmakers so that now a kid in California is only going to learn what a parent in Florida or Virginia is comfortable with? Yeah, I think that's that's a really good question. And I think one that, you know, everybody today has been trying to answer. Anytime slavery is mentioned or anytime a group in America is oppressed, it's going to cause controversy. But that should make you want to talk about it even more so that we can prevent anything um, oppressive from happening again in the future. And that's the purpose of history. And that's the purpose of why it's being taught. When you ask the college board that they they will respond and, and say, you know, absolutely not. This is a course that has been in the works for nearly a year. Um, and, you know, they've say, they stated pretty clearly no governor, no district leaders have had their hand in, in this, in the, in the final outcome of the framework. And in fact, everything that has been included in the final framework is actually the result of you know, that year-long effort and working with hundreds of educators um, and scholars from around the country. But, you know, on the flip side, I think the timing maybe makes it seem maybe certain influences had a role in the final outcome. Some people that I've spoken to here pointed out that, sure, it could be, at the end of the day, the natural changes that come with creating an AP course. It could be for, you know, the end goal of, of education for students. But, when you have a series of items that have been called out by the governor and those series of items are seemingly not there anymore, it does beg, you know, beg the question of, well, why? And so I think there, there's kind of that two kind of maybe a little bit of friction happening there um, about maybe how people are interpreting how this final framework really came to be. Yeah, and the stakes just so high here because when when Governor Ron DeSantis started talking about we don't want critical race theory in our elementary schools, it was more of a head scratcher. Everyone's like, we don't have that. Well, now real curriculum is really changing. Still not clear at all though that the College Board's taking its orders from Florida, but but those are the stakes that that people are concerned about here. All right, Summer Brugal from the Miami Herald. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me. One more quick break. When we come back, warn your roommates, warn your cousins, warn that friend who's mooching off everyone. Sharing that Netflix password is about to get a lot tougher. One last thing is next. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. And one last thing. For much of the last year, red has been the new black at Netflix. The company's stock price plummeted last year when it revealed it had lost subscribers for the first time in a decade. Not enough people were watching Netflix. At least, they weren't paying for it. Well, yesterday, shareholders were due another update. And so this time, Netflix shared its new plans for what some are calling the Great Password Crackdown. 
I don't think it's a stranger thing to say that lots of people share Netflix accounts. It's mostly just for watching TV. Maybe your parents pay for it, you use their password. Maybe you got a friend across town where you just split the monthly cost by keeping your own profile. So you just keep your big mouth shut about it. I mean, I'm not supposed to reveal my secret. Well, in some countries, Netflix is outright telling users that's no longer allowed. That's not new. We knew this was happening in Costa Rica, Chile, and Peru. But now we have details on how this is going to work. So if you go to the help page, for users in those countries, it will say there that from now on, you can only share with people in your immediate household. You need to live in the same spot. How can Netflix tell where you are? Well, from now on, they tell users, you've got to select a primary location. Any device that accesses your Netflix account needs to connect to that primary location's Wi-Fi at least once a month. If it doesn't, Netflix will know, they'll assume you don't live there, and they will block that device. Now, this immediately raises practical questions. What if you got a vacation house? Are you expected to buy a second account for there? Well, Netflix says if you go on vacation, you can get a temporary passcode for seven days, but they don't really explain what'll happen after that. What happens if you can't afford a new account all by yourself? Netflix says you can still share accounts, you'll just have to pay their new sharing fee. No, no way. But this raises an even more fundamental question. If people can't find a workaround, will they actually ante up? The whole reason Netflix is in this predicament is because subscribers apparently decided they can, in fact, live without Netflix. It's not a necessity. There's no crown on its head. This policy, which Netflix says will roll out more broadly later this year, seems to dare users to pay up or leave. Some users are reminding Netflix that just because your characters are unbreakable doesn't mean you are. I was like, what are they going to do? Put a lowjack horseman on me to see where I am? Oh, yeah, they have my IP address. All right, that was stretching it a little too far, maybe. So anyway, some news you can use to start your day. If you are not subscribed, by the way, to start here, don't forget, you can hit that follow button for a new episode every morning delivered right to your phone, no matter where you are. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. The first ever criminal trial of a former president is underway in Manhattan. It's one of potentially four trials facing former President Trump as he makes his third bid for the White House. What do voters think about his culpability, and would a guilty verdict make a difference in the election? I'm Galen Druk, and every Monday and Thursday on the 538 Politics podcast, we break down the latest news from the campaign trail. We sort through the noise and zoom in on what really matters using data and research as we go. That's 538 Politics every Monday and Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.